The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, you declare your almighty power, chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. An Old Testament reading taken from Jonah, chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The word of the Lord. A reading from Nahum. An An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. 
The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, and now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with many much serving, and she went up to him and she said, Lord, Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Lord Jesus, we do open our hearts to you. We trust you. Uh, We know that you are good. And I pray, Lord, that um, uh, as we study your word together today, you just open our eyes more and more to who you are. Grow us, Lord, in uh, love and obedience to you. And we ask this um, through your powerful name, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Some of you may be uh, familiar with the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead uh, by uh, Tom Stoppard. I think it was written in the 70s, maybe early 80s. Um, And uh, it basically tells the story of Hamlet uh, by William Shakespeare, but tells the story of Hamlet from the perspective of two more minor characters in Hamlet, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Um, And the play actually covers some very heavy topics. It deals with death. It deals with what's true and what's illusion, what's false. Um, But it's also extremely funny, or at least I find it extremely funny, and I'm not alone. Other people um, do. And one of the humorous parts of the play um, is actually that one of the characters, Guildenstern, of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, um, keeps forgetting whether he's Guildenstern or Rosencrantz. He can't keep track which one he is. And that's funny because in the play Hamlet, if you've seen Hamlet, you know you really can't keep track of which one is which. And even characters in Hamlet can't figure out which one's Guildenstern and which one's Rosencrantz. So then when you actually see even one of them can remember which one he is, that's funny. Uh, you'd have to see the play. But there are moments where Rosencrantz will actually test Guildenstern to see if he remembers who he is. And so he'll say to Guildenstern, Guildenstern... And Guildenstern will say, what? And then he'll pause and he'll say, 
Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and will say, what? What do you want? Like, he can't, he doesn't know who he is. Um, and Rosencrantz then will cry out um, uh, in frustration, consistency is all I ask. And I share with you about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern because that is perhaps one of my favorite lines from any play. Consistency is all I ask. I quote it all the time. My children hear it all the time uh, and are perhaps tired of how consistent I am in quoting that to them. My wife now sometimes uh, quotes it. Sometimes she quotes it to me and uses it uh, against me uh, when she feels I'm inconsistent. And the reason I share that quote is because perhaps at times as you've read the scriptures, as you've read different descriptions of God and his character and his actions, perhaps you've found yourself at times, perhaps not exactly saying consistency is all I ask, but you felt that a little bit. Is God inconsistent? I, I feel like, you know, I read God doing something at one point and say, okay, and then I read other places in Scripture and I feel like he's inconsistent. And maybe at times that's been something you've really struggled with. One of the sort of key things we affirm about the character and nature of God is that God is consistent. Matter of fact, we often will put it in the sense that God is unchanging, right, which is very important. Right? We do not want God to change. If God is all good, if he is completely righteous, if he is all powerful, if he is all knowing, then the idea that God would change, that God could learn something, that God could grow in any way, right, is actually a very scary thought. Right? It's good for us actually to be changing, not that we should be hypocrites, not that we should be inconsistent, but actually part of our faith is to say we always have more to grow. Right? That doesn't mean we're not valuable as we are, that God loves us, we are good people that God values, good children, Right? But there's always ways we need to grow more and more into goodness, into Christ's likeness, and more and more in repentance away from turning from sin. But God does not need to repent. God is good. And so I want to consider actually today, and especially in light of our, our two readings, how we see actually the consistency of God. And maybe ways in which we struggle with that, that we can actually sort of push into the Word of God to say, oh no, God is consistent. Yes, God looks different from us. Of course He does. He is God. But actually, he has a consistency that we seek to grow into, that we seek to be more like. And again, maybe you felt this in our two readings. So we're in a, a series, we're doing the, the Minor Prophets, and we're cheating a little bit today, and we're combining two prophets. And yes, part of the reason we're doing that is because we have to get through the summer, and we have limited um, Sundays. Part of the reason we're doing it, quite honestly, is like Jonah is the Minor Prophet you know, right? I mean, like, if you grew up in church and Sunday school, Jonah is the Minor Prophet you learn about. And so we're pretty familiar with Jonah and so it's interesting, actually, to look at Jonah together with Nahum, because both of them have to do with Nineveh. Nineveh is a, a huge city um, that was part of the kingdom of Assyria. And so it's helpful to, to compare them. And maybe even in just hearing them read, you were saying, man, th- these are pretty different. I mean, in, in Jonah, and again, quick reminder of the story of Jonah, Jonah is called by God as a prophet to go and preach to Nineveh. And if you remember, you probably do, that initially he turned and went the opposite way of Nineveh and thought that he could escape God, which a prophet should know better. Anyone should know better. You can't escape God. He tried to, ended up in the belly of a, a, a large fish, as you may remember. God vomited onto uh, to shore. Um, and the second time then, as it, it says so clear, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. God tells him again, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach to them. This time he does it. Um, reluctantly, but at least he, he obeys this time, and the Ninevites respond, right? They actually repent. It's, it's really an amazing repentance. I mean, even their cattle are called to repentance. That's how great the repentance is here. And God relents, we're told. God holds back from the judgment, from destroying that city. 
Now, if you remember the final chapter of Jonah, is again, a kind of a humorous chapter where Jonah is actually, he's waiting to see the city destroyed. He wants to see Nineveh destroyed, and he's sitting out, and he's um, watching, and there's this nice vine that grows over him that gives him shade, and he's happy sitting there in the shade, getting ready to see a city destroyed, right? Then he realizes God's not going to destroy the city. He's very upset that God actually withholds his judgment because of their repentance, and then God sends a worm to eat up the vine. And the vine is eaten up, and suddenly now Jonah has to sit in the heat, and the sun is no longer, he no longer has shade. And he's mad at God for removing the vine. And if you remember, God says to him, you're upset about this vine, but you're, you're, not, a, you know, you're not celebrating that this entire city has been spared. And the Lord says, the final verse of, of Jonah is the Lord basically says, shouldn't I have pity on Nineveh? Isn't that right? So we can see the incredible mercy of God towards these people who repented, and actually, we see him correcting one of his prophets, saying, you should be more merciful. You need to love your enemies. You need to love Nineveh. But then now we have in Nahum an oracle concerning Nineveh. Again, this is for the city of Nineveh, but in many ways we can read it for the entire Assyrian Empire. That obviously is clear of wrath, um, of vengeance, right, of, of God's judgment. Now, again, it's helpful to know this takes place much later, right? We don't know for sure the exact dates. Um, but by this point, by the, by the time of Jonah, probably um, a serious sort of rising in power. Um, by the time of Nahum, they have become sort of the world power in that area um, at that time. And so the Assyrians basically are sort of, you know, powerful over all the other nations around them. And they are known for their cruelty. Um, and we, you know, their ancient, like, you know, ruins we can find that actually inscriptions that describe sort of the ways that the king of Assyria tortured his enemies and the cruel things he did. All right, so we, we know that, and we actually know in particular they have been cruel to the nation of Israel. If you remember, the nation of Israel at one point gets basically broken up into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. But at this point, the Nahum is, is writing, and the word of the Lord is coming through Nahum, the northern kingdom um, of Israel has actually been destroyed by Assyria, and they have been an incredible threat to the southern kingdom, to Judah. We read in 2 Kings 18 and 19, you can read about King Hezekiah who faces the threat from Assyria. And Assyria basically comes and sends messengers to Judah mocking them, mocking God, saying, we will destroy you. You know, you think you can trust in God, but there's no way. That's not going to work. Um, God spares them at that point, um, and Judah actually is rescued uh, from destruction by Assyria. But Assyria continues to be an incredible threat. They continue to be a huge problem. And so that's when this is taking place. All right, so the first thing is we look at these two passages. We look at God's relenting from judgment and then God promising judgment and basically making it clear that judgment is coming. I want to affirm that God is both merciful and he's wrathful, right? That both are true and he is consistently merciful and he is consistently wrathful. Again, we see his mercy in the book of Jonah, right? And we see that this is a God who cares about people, who when the Ninevites um, repent, he honors that and he relents. This is a God who sent Jonah twice, right? One time when Jonah didn't go, he sent him a second time so that this message would be proclaimed. And yet also, we see in the book of Nahum that it says very clearly, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Now, one thing we need to make clear is when it speaks of the Lord being wrathful, that's very different than how, how we usually use wrath, and especially how we use wrath describing people, right? If we describe someone as wrathful, if you heard, you know, my boss is wrathful or something, you would think, right, this is a person with anger issues, 
It is a person that doesn't, isn't able to hold back their temper, right? Who blows up, right? Who, who, you know, is unforgiving, who is unmerciful. And that's why we need to be clear. To speak of the Lord's wrath is very different. To speak of the Lord's wrath, this is wrath against evil. The Lord is wrathful against injustice, right? Again, it, it's helpful to know that Assyria, again, is this world power that is using its power for cruelty. And we know if other nations are suffering under Assyria, how much must the people of Assyria be suffering, right? We just know that, right? We know that from history, right? If a, if a kingdom, if a nation is wrathful and cruel, then often it's their own people that suffer the most. And God is against evil. He's against injustice. His wrath is against injustice. Now, of course, we can still say, yes, but there are still people in Assyria, I mean, they're, 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 you know, he cared about the people in Jonah. Doesn't he still care about the people? Of course he does. This is where it's helpful, actually, to get to verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Those are um, the exact words um, from the book of Exodus, right? And we hear them repeated many times in describing the Lord. But in the book of Exodus, if you remember, there's a part where Moses basically says, you know, Lord, I want to see you. And the Lord appears, you know, sort of comes before uh, Moses. He's hidden in the cleft of the rock. And um, God proclaims who he is. And these are the words God uses to speak of himself. Slow to anger, right? And great in power and by no means clearing the guilty. And if you think back to Exodus, we actually see how the Lord is slow to anger, right? Remember the story of the Exodus of the Israelites being set free from slavery in Egypt, right? God tells Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go. Right? And how long does it take for Pharaoh to let the people go? It takes 10 plagues. Maybe you've read that story before, and as you read plague after plague, and Pharaoh continues, right, to harden his heart, right, and continues to resist the Lord, there's a new plague, right? And each time, right, God gives him the opportunity. Each time God, you know, opens up, you can let the people go, right? And he refuses to do it. Each time in those plagues, God is showing Pharaoh and the Egyptians I am greater than any of your gods, right? You're the world power, right? Israel is your slaves, but I am the God of Israel. I'm the God of Jacob, of Abraham, of Isaac, and I'm showing you that I have the greater power. And yet they resist and resist and resist. Maybe at times you've read that story, you've thought like, all right, like five plagues, maybe seven plagues, like, Lord, really? Like 10 plagues? You give them so many opportunities. And even then, right, after the 10th plague, when they finally set free, Pharaoh still changes his mind and comes after them. And only then, right, does the Lord completely destroy Pharaoh and his army. So we actually see the patience of God. And we see that, right, in this passage, even as this speaks of the Lord's wrath and his vengeance against his enemies, we get verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Right? And Jonah has affirmed that, right? As people turn to the Lord in repentance, as they cry out to him, they can find a refuge in him. So the God is a God of justice. When I thought of this slow to anger, um, I thought of uh, growing up, uh, my mom, um, uh, it was definitely an important rule in our house that you did not say bad words. You didn't cuss. I mean, definitely in front of my mom, but, you know, she'd find out even if you cussed when she wasn't around. You know, we were sure my mom would track that down, right? And my mom was consistent in what she asked of us. She also did not do except for a couple times, right? There were a few times as a kid I remember my mom saying a bad word. Um, now, it was like a bad word that like, you could say on television in those days, so like, not even really a bad word, but definitely a bad word that my mom um, uh, considered a bad word. She may be watching this on live stream right now, so I want to make clear, my mom had a very clean mouth. She still does. But the occasions when she actually let loose, you know, with, again, a minor cuss word, 
were like, oh my gosh, like, this is really bad. Like, whatever happened, like, if my mom said something and, like, I knew, like, if I was part of the problem, like, I was in big trouble. Because my mom was slow to cuss, all right? But if she did cuss, it meant, wow, things are bad. Okay, in the same sense, we could say the Lord is slow to anger. And so when we see this vengeance, this promise of judgment, this is one who knows this is the time, right? The, the, the end of the injustice that the Assyrian Empire is committing, the end of the violence has now come, and they have to pay. This is a God who is patient, but also, again, who is just. And the fact is, even as we wrestle, right, and I know many of us do with, you know, how do we understand the wrath of God and His judgment? I'm sure all of us have had times where we probably cried out to the Lord and said, Lord, why don't we see your judgment? Lord, I actually want to see your judgment right now. Well, you're right in Ukraine and North Korea and northern Nigeria, right, in the United States, right? I, I'm wondering, Lord, why we aren't seeing more of your justice? Why aren't we seeing more of your wrath? So we can find ourselves on both ends. And that's where we trust, right? The Lord knows. He knows the timing. It's, it's interesting. Uh, look at verse 12 um, in Nahum. Thus says the Lord. He's speaking to Judah here. He's speaking to his people. Though they are of full strength, right, speaking of the Assyrians and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke off from you. You hear the timing, right? God knows the timing. He's saying, now is the time. Now is the time for Assyria's, you know, evil and their harm and their cruelty to end. And then verse 14, speaking to Assyria, speaking to Nineveh, the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetrated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the middle image. Right? This is the Lord, the judge, saying, I, enough, right? Now is the time. That is God's priority. And so we can be thankful, right, that God knows. I think of Abraham um, when he has a dialogue with the Lord in the book of Genesis. And it's, it's fascinating because it's really Abraham's still getting to know God. He's still kind of figuring out who is this God that I follow and has made these covenants with me. And if you remember, he asked God repeatedly, will not the judge of the earth do what is just? He's understanding, right? I, I, I think God, this God I'm interacting with is, is actually the judge of the whole earth. And he asked the question, won't you do what is just? And the answer clearly is yes, right? I know what is just and I will do what is just. So again, we see the, the patience, the mercy of the Lord, but the wrath against sin and against evil. Amazingly enough, right, we see that the Lord himself bore the wrath against sin in his own body on the cross. As we read this and as we reflect on the wrath of God, we know that the wrath we deserve, right, for our sinfulness has been paid for by him. So the Lord is both wrathful um, and forgiving and merciful and slow to anger. We can also affirm that the Lord is both present to us, right, responsive to us in the present, and He knows all things, and He knows the future. And again, sometimes we may think, is that inconsistent? I mean, I, I hear affirmations, God knows all things, He knows the future, He is working His plans out, and yet I'm also told that my prayers make a difference, that God actually hears my prayers, that He is responsive to me in the presence, and both are true. And God is consistent, actually, in saying, what you pray matters. Call out to me, I hear your prayers, and in saying, I am ultimately working all things out. Now, how both are true, that's beyond what uh, I can understand, and many theologians have wrestled with that and wrestled with the question of God's sovereignty and our responsibilities as humans, right? And so we can say there's a mystery there, but we can affirm the Word of God that both are true, 
And again, we see that in these two readings, right? We see that it makes a difference that Nineveh repents, right? It matters that they turn from, the, from their sin and turn to the Lord. It matters when we repent. It matters when we first put our faith in Jesus and repent and trust in Him, right? When we are saved and, and experience new life in Christ. It matters to live a life of repentance, to continue to turn to the Lord, to receive that forgiveness that we know is there and that is promised to us, but continue to seek His help. It matters when we bring our request to Him. He hears that when we pray for healing, when we pray for help, when we cry out to Him. But we do so, we pray to one who holds all things in His hands, right? The, the oracle against Nineveh makes it very clear, God knows Nineveh's future, right? He knows that judgment is coming, right? He knew that they would repent, right, when Jonah came, and he knows now that the time of repentance, sadly, at least for most of Assyria, for most of the empire, has passed on, that they have gone beyond the place of turning to him, right? And he's giving them this warning and this promise. And we basically know from history, we can kind of pull back, and we can see how at this moment God is working his purposes out. Right? We know actually that it's Babylon that ultimately defeats um, Assyria and actually ultimately leads to them losing that, all that power that they had. But then, surprisingly, shockingly, God uses Babylon, which is also a pretty cruel place, to judge his people and to bring them into exile, to bring the nation of Judah into exile. But we know that God uses that actually to turn the people of Judah away from their idolatry, and that he brings them back into the promised land in his timing. Right? And we know that as they dwelt in the promised land, the Messiah came. Right? When they were under a different world power, under the Roman Empire, and as the Messiah came and the good news of Jesus spread out, that the, God actually used the Roman Empire and all that they had built in order to be a means by which the good news could go forth. So we can kind of step back and say, wow, God is working his purpose. Now, we don't understand all that God does, but we see him sovereignly working, and yet he's also responsive in the moment. And so as we bring our prayers before the Lord, we can trust, yes, Lord, you actually do hear these prayers. You actually respond to what I pray out. But the one who is responding is one who has a perspective that we just can't have, right? I mean, he has a perspective because he's God. So that's, again, maybe something that feels inconsistent that we can push into and say, maybe it feels inconsistent, but it's not. That the one I pray to knows all things, and yet he's present to me at this moment. He actually rejoices and, and celebrates when I cry out to him. Right? I mean, even in the Scriptures, right, we have people crying out to the Lord with complaints. And they're there in the Scriptures. We can quote the Scriptures um, and, and cry out to the Lord knowing that this is what He wants of us, that He is responsive to that. The final thing I want to celebrate, again, in the consisting of the Lord, is that the Lord is all-powerful and He is humble, right? And both are true. Our God, right, is, is, is you know, again, beyond all-powerful. I mean, how do we even describe His power and His greatness and yet he is humble. Right? We see so clearly um, in this um, Nahum reading right, the power of the Lord. Look at verse 5. I mean, that quotes it. And it's similar to verses that we see throughout um, the um, Minor Prophets. And that you've, if you've been with us these past few Sundays, have heard already similar verses. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Right? He's all-powerful. Again, if you read 2 Kings, you read the time where um, messengers from Assyria were sent to threaten Judah, they mock God, right? They're like, why would your God help you? Other nations' gods haven't helped you, right? They're basically mocking that God could possibly be all-powerful. But God affirms, right? He is all-powerful. He is the Lord of all the earth, and all things are in his hands. And yet, we can also affirm that God is humble, 
Now, what does that mean when we speak of God being humble? Again, sort of like we're speaking about God's wrath. We have to understand, right, God's humility probably looks different from our humility in some ways, right? For us to say, I'm all-powerful, I'm awesome, right, would be lacking humility. For God to say that actually is good, right? We, we need God to say that because we need to learn from the Lord that He is all-powerful. He is affirming what is true. And yet we see the humility of God and that He's also a servant, amazingly. An almighty God, king, judge of the whole earth, is actually a servant. I mean, look at the way he serves Nineveh, right? He serves them by sending Jonah to them. He didn't have to do that, right? He's God of all the earth. He's sovereign over all things. He didn't have to warn them. He didn't have to call them to repentance. But God serves them by sending his servant, Jonah, Right? And he serves us by actually teaching Jonah. Right? When we read the book of Jonah, right, we see actually, if you, if you read that, if you looked at the video we sent out um, uh, from the Bible Project, I love how it ended basically that Jonah sort of is like a mirror to us. And we can say, wow, how am I like Jonah? How do I actually want my enemies to suffer rather than to repent and turn to the, the Lord? And so the Lord serves us. And he serves Nineveh um, uh, through um, the words of Nahum. He's warning them. He's telling them, I am the judge. You have to answer to me. God didn't need to do that. And so we see the humility, obviously, of the Lord here in the, the Scriptures, and Him caring, and Him actually caring enough to speak the truth um, to those who needed to hear the truth. And so it's no surprise then that when God comes in the flesh, right, and we see what, what is God like in, in, in human form, right, as a man, we see one, right, who is incredibly humble. Right? I mean, that's what we should expect. We shouldn't be surprised when we look at Jesus like, oh, that's God? Because, again, we've seen him serve again and again. So when he washes his disciples' feet, we should say, oh, yeah, of course that's what God would do. Right? This is the Lord who sent prophets to warn people, to turn them away from their sin when he didn't have to. Of course this is what the Lord would do, that he would go to the cross and bear our sins upon himself. For he is that merciful. He is that kind. He is that humble. And so when we worship the Lord, right, we can celebrate His power and His might. But in doing so, we are in no way denying His humility and His kindness, right? We can celebrate actually His justice and that He is judge of all the earth. And we are in no way diminishing the fact that He is merciful and He is kind. We can celebrate that He knows all things and that He sees beyond what we can see, but are not denying the fact that He is present with us at this moment. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank You that you are with us right now, um, that you are responsive. Lord, you tell us right, that as we gather together and worship in your name, that you are with us. You tell us, actually, that we, in a sense, build your throne um, as we worship you, um, that our worship of you matters. We thank you for that, Lord. Um, we uh, lift high um, your name, and we um, pray, Lord, that you continue to give us a, a vision Fulfill, Lord, more and more, clarify more and more who you are. We thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking um, through uh, your word. And pray, Lord, again, that um, as we celebrate your unchanging nature, that you would change us more and more to be more like Jesus. We ask all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.